Our text today comes from Matthew chapter 5 as we continue our study of Matthew's gospel and the Sermon on the Mount. Hear God's holy word. Do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Thus far the reading of God's word, let's give thanks together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word, and we pray that your spirit now would guide us into truth, that you would deliver us from every distraction, that you would deliver us from all error, protect our minds and our hearts, and we pray that you would open us up to receive and to hear and to obey your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have you ever heard of a Shabbat elevator or a Sabbath elevator? In cities with large Jewish populations, buildings have elevators which operate continuously from sundown on Friday to sundown on Saturday night. They go all the way to the top floor of the building and they go all the way to the bottom floor of the building and they stop at every floor so that no one has to push a button on the Sabbath. You don't have to push a button to call the elevator. When you get in, you don't have to push a button to tell it what floor to go to. It will go. If you wait, it'll go and it'll stop at every floor. The rationale is that since pushing a button creates a spark and creating a spark is technically starting a fire because Exodus 35 forbids kindling fires on the Sabbath, therefore, any other way of riding an elevator would be a violation of the Sabbath. Where does Moses talk about elevators? He doesn't. Uh, that's not the point. This is an extrapolation based on the prohibition of kindling fires on the Sabbath. And so Orthodox and Hasidic Jews have spent centuries creating new laws uh, to govern just about every situation in life. They're not providing wisdom for how to navigate life in a, an industrial or technological age, not giving you wisdom for how to apply God's law, but new laws, new regulations, new ordinances for just about everything. So for example, three times God's law says, do not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. And so Orthodox Jews today keep their dairy and their meat separate. Uh, they have different utensils and different appliances, even different uh, refrigerators for dairy and meat. Some Hasidic Jews even separate their consumption of meat and dairy by hours so that the meat and dairy doesn't mix in their stomachs. If you put cream in your coffee at breakfast, then you can't have corned beef for lunch uh, because it would mix in your stomach and then you would violate God's law or so it seems. Uh, there's just a number of burdensome regulations that attend their observation of the Sabbath. Just about everything you do on the Sabbath has to be scrutinized to determine whether it can be considered work. Can you carry something on the Sabbath? Is that work? If so, then what is a burden too big to carry? on the Sabbath. Well, the ancient Jewish scribal law left nothing to your own 
uh, um, uh, figuring out, nothing to your own judgment. Um, and so here's what, here's what the ancient scribal law says about what is too big a burden to carry on the Sabbath. I'm reading it. A burden is food equal in weight to a dried fig, enough wine for mixing in a goblet, milk enough for one swallow, honey enough to put on a wound, water enough to moisten an eye salve, ink enough to write two letters of the alphabet. Essentially, you can't carry anything on the Sabbath. Anything bigger than a dried fig or heavier, uh, anything more than just a little swallow of milk, uh, carrying that is considered work and that is forbidden on the Sabbath. Writing is considered work on the Sabbath by the ancient scribal Jewish law. Here's what they say about that. He who writes two letters of the alphabet with his right or left hand, whether of one kind or two kinds, if they're written with different inks or in different languages, is guilty. Even if he should write two letters from forgetfulness. Now, I'm not talking about writing a letter. I'm talking about writing a character, writing the letter uh, one letter, if he should write two letters from forgetfulness, he is guilty, whether he's written them with ink or with paint, red chalk, or anything which makes a permanent mark. But if anyone writes with a dark fluid, with fruit juice, you know, or you just write with fruit juice, right? Or, or the dust on the road, or in sand, or anything that does not leave a permanent mark, he is not guilty. Uh, how do you keep track of all of these burdensome, onerous regulations on keeping the Sabbath. Does that make the Sabbath a delight? Is the Sabbath really rest if you are keeping track of all of these things and not breaking a single ordinance? Is this what the psalmist sang about in Psalm 119 when he sang, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Is, is this what the psalmist had in mind? Is this the law that Jesus speaks about in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus says, do not think that I came to destroy the law of the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill the law. Not one jot, not one tittle will pass away from the law till all is fulfilled. Is that the same law that Jesus came to establish, that he came to fulfill? Well, the short answer is no. That's not it at all. It's not the same thing. All these laws that I just laid out and the, and the hundreds and hundreds of others that go with them, these are not God's laws. The short answer is no, this is not the law that Jesus came to establish. The longer answer is going to take the rest of my time today. The longer answer is that we have to define our terms. When we come to the New Testament world that Jesus steps into, we must, in order to rightly understand the Gospels, in fact, in, in order to understand Paul's letters as well, all the epistles, in order to understand, we must uh, have a grip of and an appreciation of both God's law as it was given through Moses and how that law was being distorted, how it was being mishandled and corrupted by the Jewish religious authorities of Jesus' day. The principal culprits of this 
mishandling and distortion were the scribes and the Pharisees. And it's to the scribes and the Pharisees that Jesus directs his uh, most fiery, uh, uh, his, his most fiery judgments uh, against the scribes and the Pharisees. The scribes were the legal experts. The scribes were the ones who worked out all the details of whether you could carry a fig on the Sabbath or not. The Pharisees were the separated ones. That's what Pharisee means. They're the separated ones who made it their life's mission to keep all of these laws. Scribes and Pharisees, these are the culprits, and many of those who call themselves Jews today are the heirs of their traditions. Before I get too much further, I need to clarify a couple of things. The prohibition about starting fires on the Sabbath has more to do with not setting up your own altar on the Lord's day. There is a fire. There is an altar fire on the Lord's day. It's over at the tabernacle. You don't start a family altar. You don't do uh, your, your own thing separate at your own tent. You don't set up your little hearth with your own uh, sacrifice at your house when there's an altar fire uh, burning at the, at the Lord's house, at the tabernacle. His is the altar you attend to on the Lord's day. So that, that's what the prohibition on kindling a fire on the Lord's day is about. It's not about warming your house. It's not about lighting your room. And it's certainly not about elevators at all. Um, also, the, the prohibition about boiling a young goat in its mother's milk, that's, that's instruction on, uh, on, on not using what is designed for life in a destructive way. You don't use something designed for life in a destructive way. It has nothing to do with uh, cheeseburgers, for example. And the fourth commandment, if you read the fourth commandment as God gave it at Mount Sinai, it's more about giving rest. It's giving rest to your house. It's giving rest to your servants. It's even about giving rest to your animals, not about whether you can carry something any larger than a fig. Uh, but but they, they get all this wrong and they distort it and they confuse it. And so, so how are we able to see this? How are we able to get to the heart of this? Well, because we see Jesus live out the law and Jesus is not consumed with these petty, onerous, minute regulations and ordinances. That's not what Jesus fills his head and his heart with. That's not what he directs his people to. He lives out the law and he obeys his father's law perfectly. And it doesn't look like that. It doesn't look like what uh, we see as this, um, uh, this burdensome uh, Jewish law keeping, this pharisaical law keeping. We also have the Holy Spirit to guide us into truth. And that's why uh, we can see these things. So when we refer to the law, it's vital that we define what we're talking about. What do you mean when you say the law? Are you referring to the Ten Commandments? Because sometimes in the scriptures, that's what the law is referring to, the, the, the core of God's law. Or are you referring to the first five books of the Bible? When you say the law, sometimes the Pentateuch. Um, the books of Moses are referred to as the law, and that's an appropriate way to use the word law. Or are we talking about the whole Old Testament? Jesus will refer to the law and the prophets, and he does it in the Sermon on the Mount. He calls the Old Testament the law, and he calls it the law and the prophets. And all of these are valid ways of talking about the law, God's law. We're, we're talking about what God communicated to his people by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's God's law. The Ten Commandments the books of Moses, the Old Testament, that's, that's the law. Um, so it's important to be clear and make a distinction that when we talk about the law, are we talking about God's word or 
are we referring to the oral law tradition of the scribes, the scribal law, the endless complicated extra biblical regulations handed down through generations of scribes. When they finally wrote it all down in the third century, uh, it, it, it uh, was published as the Mishnah, and that was about 800 pages. In addition to God's law, 800 pages of rabbinical writings uh, that interpreted God's law, which was really just binding men's consciences with more regulations, that the Mishnah was later expanded again into the Talmuds, another 2,700 pages of, of ordinances uh, for them. So in the time of Jesus, all of these traditions, all of the scribal law was circulating as oral tradition. And to the strict Pharisee in the first century, for them, obeying God and serving God was a matter of keeping hundreds of legal rules, which they considered the law. And so when a Pharisee said the law, that's what they were referring to, this oral law tradition. And this tradition is what Jesus goes out of his way to, uh, to oppose throughout his ministry. Jesus deliberately breaks the laws of the Jews. He deliberately breaks their ordinances by healing on the Sabbath, by eating with hands that hadn't been ceremonially cleansed. You know, the apostles ate grain without ceremonially cleansing their hands. He forgave sins. He befriended people that they considered unclean. He feasted when they thought he ought to be fasting. Um, and, and he purposely, he deliberately breaks their traditions. And if you're not paying attention, you get confused. If, uh, if you're not paying attention, you think, well, wait a minute, Jesus is breaking all these ordinances. And uh, I thought Jesus came to fulfill the law, and here he is breaking it. No, 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 no. He's not breaking his father's law. He's breaking the traditions of the Pharisees that are being passed off as law. And those are the things that he condemns. He doesn't uphold those. The apostle Paul doesn't uphold those. He opposes those as well. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes on offense. He takes the initiative by preaching about a righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. When Jesus says that he came to fulfill the law, not destroy it, what law is he talking about? Well, it, it must be his father's perfect law, the law of Moses. We know this because he refers to it as the law and the prophets. And when he quotes it, he quotes God's law. If you have the Sermon on the Mount open in front of you, if you have Matthew chapter 5 open, you look at verse 21, and he says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Well, he's quoting the sixth commandment. In verse 27, he says, you've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Well, that's the seventh commandment. In verse 33, he says, you've heard it said, you shall not swear falsely, but you shall perform all your oaths to the Lord. Well, that's Leviticus 19.12. He's just quoting um, Leviticus. In verse 38, he says, you've heard it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's Exodus 21.24. So he's quoting and he's referring to his father's perfect law when he says, I've come to fulfill it. He's inviting his disciples to join him in keeping his father's law in a way that fulfills it, establishes it, and brings it into full effect. He's not here to abolish it or to destroy it, but to keep it in a more complete way. Now, let's 
Remember where we are in Matthew's gospel. Jesus began his work after the imprisonment of John the Baptist. He begins his work up in the northern reaches of Galilee in the northern territory, far from Jerusalem. He's among the common people. He's healing. He's casting out demons. He's announcing the arrival of his kingdom. The crowds have flocked to him. He's been calling his apostles individually to follow him. And now he sits on a mountain to teach. And then he opens his mouth in these declarations, these blessings. He sings over his people. This is who you are as part of my kingdom. And here are the blessings that are attending you as you are, are living through the coming of my kingdom, as my kingdom comes rushing in. We call those the Beatitudes. And then after that, he says, you are the salt of the earth. You are the light's of the world. You have a role. You have a mission. You have a function in the world. You're to purify the world. You're to enhance the taste of the world. You're to radiate truth and shine the worship of, of Jesus. You shine the worship of the king in your, in your life. Now, based on the identity of his people and their union with him and their likeness to him, now he begins to instruct. So far, he's been giving declarations. Here's, here's some realities. Now, based on that, here come some practical imperatives. Here he begins the commands, and he opens the section with an important clarification. He says in verse 17, do not think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Because he is preaching about the coming of his kingdom, the reorganization of Israel, a, a renewed people, many would assume that Jesus is just a revolutionary. He's coming to tear everything down that came before. He's going he's to destroy it all, and he's going to replace it with, uh, with something entirely different. So Jesus states clearly at the outset, I am not here to destroy the law and the prophets. We're not leaving the law in the dust. We aren't ignoring it. We aren't disrespecting it. Everything I am here to do, everything I'm going to teach you to do is a fulfillment of the law. We're here to fulfill the law, not to destroy it. It's so interesting that he uses the word fulfill. He doesn't say keep the law, though he is keeping it. He doesn't say obey the law, though he absolutely obeys it, but he's doing something more. He says, fulfill. He, he uses this word fulfill. And Matthew has used this word several times in his gospel. Everything that something, uh, every time that something happens in Matthew's gospel that was foretold by the prophets in the Old Testament, Matthew says this is a fulfillment of what was written by the prophets. And more often than not, that fulfillment is a surprising twist or a new understanding of what the prophets said. So for example, Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee from Bethlehem of Judea. They flee Judea into Egypt, fleeing from Herod and his destruction of the children in Bethlehem. And then Matthew says, oh yeah, that's the fulfillment of the prophet Hosea. Well, what did Hosea say? Matthew quotes it. Hosea said um, that, he, he says, out of Egypt, I have called my son. And you say, no, wait a minute, uh, they're leaving Judea, they're going into Egypt. Why, why is this a, a fulfillment of Hosea's prophecy? He's going into Egypt, not out of Egypt. And then you, it, it clicks, the prophecy is fulfilled in a surprising way. Oh yes, Judea is like Egypt, and Herod is like Pharaoh. 
Ah, so, so fulfill doesn't mean wrap up the old thing and put it away. When it comes to prophecy, fulfill means to bring the old word forward, live it out, shine fresh light on it, and establish it. There is a sense of completion. There is a sense of satisfaction. The prophet said that a thing would happen. Jesus did it. And so the prophecy was fulfilled. But there's also this sense of filling it with new, deeper, richer meaning. It clicks together in a way that we didn't anticipate, in a way that we didn't expect. Um, it's, it's a new way. And it's a, it's a more glorious way. So this is how Jesus fulfilled the prophets. This is also how he fulfills the law. He fulfills the law by faithful obedience. Jesus never, ever breaks a single law of his father. But then his obedience is greater than that of the scribes and Pharisees. They think that they're obeying God's law by prohibiting all kinds of things that God doesn't prohibit. They say no eating with sinners. They say no healing on the Sabbath. But Jesus keeps his father's law by doing those things. He does the things that they prohibit. So, so if Israel had been more concerned about pleasing Yahweh and less concerned about maintaining this personal state of moral hygiene, which was a source of pride for them, then they also would have been like Jesus. They would have had fellowship with the Gentiles. They would have done works of mercy and given rest on the Sabbath. And so the way Jesus obeys the law exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees because he's the word of the father. Jesus knows the father's will. He knows his father's desires in his law. And so Jesus can keep every jot and every tittle, every point, every stroke of the pen. Jesus can keep it all. And wherever the Pharisees disagree with Jesus's application or Jesus understanding the law, they're disagreeing with Yahweh himself. Jesus is the Torah. Jesus is the law incarnate. He is the will of the Father. He is the walking, talking, breathing pleasure of Yahweh in person. Whatever you think, or whatever I think, or whatever the Jews think about what God's law means or what it requires, Jesus clears up everything. He defines covenant keeping. He defines law keeping, which is why those who identify as Jews today, they have no clue what they're doing. They have no clue what they're following or, they, or what they're obeying. God gave them the word incarnate. He gave them the key. He gave them the example. He gave them the Rosetta Stone to interpret and unpack his law, but they ignored him and they still ignore him today. And now they're attempting to put something together and for centuries, trying to put something together that looks like obedience, but it makes them twice the child of hell. It makes them sons of Satan. That's what Jesus called them. And that's how you get this labyrinth of onerous, burdensome laws by ignoring the key and trying to come up with some way of obeying God's law apart from Jesus. And it cannot be done. It is impossible. You cannot obey God's law apart from Jesus and seeing the law through his obedience and fulfillment. And so here, Jesus invites his disciples to join him in his way of law keeping by hearing and obeying God's law through his own sacrificial life. In Philippians 2, Paul writes about this. Paul says, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So you see, ultimately, in his death, 
Jesus' obedience exceeded the righteousness, the law-keeping of the scribes and Pharisees. And thus the cross is given to us as a prism through which all of the law shines into the new covenant, into the new creation. The cross of Jesus and his sacrificial work there is the fulfillment of all the law as well as the preeminent example of obedience to God's law. All of the old covenant law comes to a point in the cross and then gets transformed and distributed and then glorified into new covenant life and into new covenant faithfulness. So if you believe it's helpful to divide the law, the Old Testament law, into the ceremonial and the civil and the moral categories, all of that, the ceremonial law, the moral law, the civil law, all gets, comes down to a fine point and meets its fulfillment in the cross and then gets transformed and glorified into new covenant obedience and application. And Jesus helps us figure out what that looks like here. He teaches us this in the Sermon on the Mount. So throughout the next section of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus shows us what this new covenant obedience looks like. He gives us several new covenant applications of his father's law. And we're just going to look at one today. And this is going to take up the next several weeks as we hear and listen to um, Jesus's instruction on this. We're just going to look at the first one, uh, verse 21. Here again, God's word. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, shall be in danger of the council. But whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest your adversary deliver you to the judge, the judge hand you over to the officer, and you be thrown into prison. Assuredly, I say to you, you will by no means get out of there till you have paid the last penny. Probably the most common misunderstanding of what Jesus is doing in this section is that he is, he's teaching the new covenant and he's replacing external obedience with internal sentiments, internal feelings, as if the new covenant is all about this internal sentiment and the old covenant was about external obedience. As if, as if Jesus is removing any obligation to an objective code of morality and what he's doing here is replacing it with subjective heart religion. But that doesn't make any sense at all, if you think about it for just a minute. He's not saying, well, now in the new covenant, it really doesn't matter if you murder anybody. All that matters is how you feel in your heart. Or it doesn't matter whether you commit adultery. As long as you don't love her in your heart, well, then that's, what, that's all that matters. All that matters is what's in your heart. That just opens the door to all kinds of intellectual gymnastics to justify sin. That doesn't make any sense. He's not inviting us to violate or hate or despise God's law. In fact, that's what he says he is not doing. He's not destroying the law. He's not contradicting the law. He's building on his father's law. He's amplifying it. He's intensifying it. When Jesus says, you have heard it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Who said that? Who is he quoting? Is, is Jesus saying, you know, it's been said. I've just heard this crazy rumor floating around. Somebody, somebody sometimes said, you shall not murder. I don't know who said it. Is he quoting the scribes there? No. God said that. God said you shall not murder. 
This is what Yahweh said to your fathers. Do not murder. And now he says, here's how my people are going to keep that law. Let me show you how to avoid not only the grievous sin of murder, but I don't want you to even get there. I don't want you to even get close to that. Here are the errors of thought and behavior that lead to that sin. You put yourself under the threat of judgment, not just with the act of murder, but all the way back here at the kindling of unrighteous anger. So stop it here. Stop it in the heart. Discipline that. Exterminate the tiny weeds of sin. And you won't have the full-blown fruit of sin. And your righteousness will exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. Which, have you ever read that and you thought, well, that's just impossible. When you hear, when you hear Jesus say, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you'll by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. He said, well, what's the point? I mean, my goose is cooked. I mean, they were really righteous guys, right? Right? No, wrong. They weren't. If you think that the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is actually righteousness that's pleasing to God, you've missed the whole point. You realize that their righteousness was a human construct. They were fumbling around in the darkness, heaping up burdens on others and exalting themselves. It was an external, uh, wallpaper thin, um, uh, very superficial righteousness. And you see what Jesus is actually teaching is not impossible. It's actually what he's calling, calling us to is everyday faithfulness. He's just calling us to obey, not to, uh, not to burden ourselves with these uh, petty ordinances that really don't do anything and really don't mean anything. So he says, you've heard it said, and he quotes his father's law, you've heard it said, uh, you shall not murder, but I say to you, I say to you, that whoever is angry with his brother without a cause shall be in danger of the judgment. By the way, what is Jesus doing there when he says, he quotes his father and he says, I say to you, what's he doing? He's putting himself in a position of God. He's saying, God has said this and I have the authority to unpack that and to tell you what this means. Jesus is putting himself in the place of God, which he has full authority to do uh, because he is uh, the God incarnate. And so he says, I am teaching you now about a surpassing righteousness, a full obedience to the law. And from there, he makes application. How do you keep this law? How do you keep the law? You shall not murder. Well, here's how you keep it. First, you don't nurture anger with your brother. Anger itself is not always forbidden. God expresses anger. Psalm 2, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Psalm 7, God is a just judge and God is angry with the wicked every day. So God is angry and God does not sin. Therefore, anger itself is not sin. God's anger toward the wicked is a manifestation of his holiness. God's anger is a righteous response to evil and anything that violates his holy standards. So anger is not sin. <laughs> Ephesians 4.26 says, be angry and do not sin. <laughs> so anger and sin are not synonyms. Righteous anger, holy anger is provoked by wickedness. Anger that's righteous is provoked by violence done to the innocent, by brazen injustice. There are things you must be angry about. And if you're not angry about them, you're not holy and you're not righteous. 
If you don't get angry about the broad, cultural, casual acceptance of abortion, of infanticide, if you're not angry about that, you're not holy. You are not godly. You're not sharing God's values. You don't share God's definition of justice. There are things that must make us angry. There is a proper place for anger. But holy anger always acts righteously. If I'm angry about something, what does God require me to do about it? My anger is like a light on the dashboard. It's calling me to do something. I'm required to do something about my anger. Well, maybe I must confront the sinner. Maybe I need to keep confronting him and keep calling him to repentance. Maybe I need to find ways to protect and defend the innocent, the victims of the sin. Maybe I can't do anything else but to call on God to judge. I've done everything I can and nothing is changing. And so I really have to leave it up to God for God to judge and to vindicate, uh, vindicate the victims. The imprecatory Psalms are there for a reason. Three times the New Testament tells us to sing the Psalms, and that means all the Psalms, even the ugly ones, even the hard ones, even the ones that call for God's vengeance on his enemies. They're there for a reason. So use those. Confront the sinner. Defend the victim. Pray to God for justice and judgment. What you can't do, what we must not do, is simply brood in anger, simmer in hate, and not confront, and not defend, and not petition God. Uh, you're not permitted to simply boil in wrath and anger. You see, there are godly ways to process anger. We imitate God. That's what it means to be godly, is to imitate God. How is the Lord angry? Well, Psalm 103 says, the Lord, is ang uh, uh, the Lord is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy. Is that what your anger looks like? Is your anger slow and plenteous in mercy? James, in his epistle, he talks about the wrath of man that doesn't work the righteousness of God. The wrath of man is very different from the wrath of God. Sinful anger is different from God's holy anger. So anger is like this volatile substance, like this, this very dangerous chemical, which can be used for good things in the right place in the right time, but it's also explosive and destructive if you mishandle it. So anger is not for the immature. Anger is not for the novice. So I always think that if I'm angry because of the wickedness of my heart, because I'm sinful, my, my automatic assumption is I must be unrighteously angry. I must be sinfully angry. My first assumption must be that this anger is disordered. This anger is sinful because I am a sinner and I don't have clear judgment. And so I must evaluate, what am I angry about? Am I angry about something that God has called sin? If so, and I am not guilty of the sin and I'm not complicit in the sin, then it may be holy anger. It may be righteous anger. More often than not, I'm not angry over something that, that God hates. I'm angry over something that just upset my day, or I'm angry over some, some inconvenience. And so we have to check ourselves and exercise self-discipline over our hearts and over our minds. The anger that Jesus specifically speaks of is anger directed toward your brother. And some, some translations add, if you're angry with your brother without cause, as if to underscore, this is, a, um, this is an anger that festers. This is an anger that doesn't produce godly action. This is an anger that is not justified. This is a sinful anger. Some people just wake up in the morning angry. They just wake up contentious. They have this boiling 
a pot of wrath in their belly. And they look for the first target, the first opportunity to pour it out on somebody else. This is, this is an anger that's always simmering. It becomes bitterness and hatefulness and contentiousness. This is where murder begins. Murder begins with this boiling, simmering anger. This is sixth commandment breaking. And there's a progression here. It begins with unproductive, ungodly, sinful anger, brooded over, boiling inside, and it always works its way out. If it's not checked, if the temperature's not turned down, it will find its way out. Jesus says, you call your brother Raka. You say to your brother Raka. What's that? That's an Aramaic word that means empty. It's like saying you're worthless or you're empty-headed uh, you're brainless. You tear down your brother's reputation. I know there's some little boys here who are going to try to work that in. I know you think, ah, I got a new one. I'm going to say Raka. Uh, better be careful. Be careful with that one. Jesus, if Jesus says don't say something, then you probably shouldn't say it, right? Can we, can we agree on that? Um, but you see what's happening now is that it's working out. You're tearing down your brother's reputation. Your anger begins manifesting itself in recruiting others into sharing your contempt for your brother. Jesus says, if you call someone empty, if you're tearing down their reputation like this, you're probably going to end up in front of a council of elders for slander. And he adds to that. He says, if you call your brother a fool, you're in danger of hellfire. The word that Jesus uses for fool here is not, that doesn't mean simpleton. That doesn't mean silly person. That doesn't mean, that doesn't mean dummy. It's not the word he's using for fool. The word implies moral bankruptcy. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That kind of fool. Um, if you call your brother a fool in this sense, you're not just talking about his mental capacity, you're attacking his entire character. You're saying he is morally bankrupt. You're branding him as an immoral, unbelieving man. Now, let's stop and process what Jesus is saying here. Um, if you call your brother empty, you could end up in front of the judge. If you call your brother a fool, you, you might end up in hell. What's he, what, is that over the top? Are, are Jesus' warnings here just a little bit extreme? Well, Jesus himself is going to use this word fool, very same word. He's going to use this word fool for the scribes and the Pharisees. So why does Jesus say, and he uses it righteously for the scribes and Pharisees, because they are being unbelieving fools. It is an accurate description of how they're behaving. So why does Jesus say that this kind of language can put you in danger of judgment and hell? Because the kind of anger that he's addressing is the, the anger that's producing these words is not a godly, righteous, holy anger. This is, this is not typically a, a righteous anger. This most often like the anger of Cain. In fact, Cain and Abel is, 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 seems to be what Jesus is alluding to here. Jesus keeps referring to your brother, your brother, your brother, your brother. Cain killed his brother. Jesus even talks about an altar. He says, if you get to the altar and you're not reconciled to your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled. If you're not in fellowship with your brother, it affects your worship and your relationship to God. The health of our relationship to the brethren is related to the health of our relationship to God. John writes it very clearly in his epistle. The apostle John writes, if someone says, I love God, and hates his brother, 
he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how he, can he love God whom he has not seen? In shorter terms, you can't love God and hate your brother. It's impossible. So Jesus says, don't come to the temple with an offering if you're not reconciled to your brother. If you come to the temple, you get to the altar, and you remember that you are not in fellowship with your brother, leave your gift at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother and then come back and worship because you must be in fellowship with your brother in order for your worship to be acceptable. You have to be right with the brethren. If you're out of fellowship with your brother, you're out of fellowship with God if you haven't done everything that you can to restore that relationship. Now, here's what's kind of funny about this is that Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to people in he's talking to people in Galilee who are well over a day's journey from Galilee to Jerusalem. So you leave Galilee, you get on your donkey, you take your offering all the way down to Jerusalem and you get to the temple and you get up to the altar, you're in line, the priest is ready for you, you're about to offer your gift and then oh no, I'm not in fellowship with my brother. And what does Jesus say do? You leave your offering there, you go get back on your donkey, and you go all the way back up to Galilee because you can't text him, you can't phone him, you can't Facebook message him from there. You got to get back on your donkey and you got to go all the way back up to Galilee. Those are the extremes to which you must go in order to be restored to your brother before offering your gift. That's what Jesus says. Why? Well, so we're not like Cain. So we don't behave like Cain. Cain was upset with his brother over an offering. Cain's worship was not acceptable to the Lord. Cain nursed his contempt and his hatred for his brother, even against the warning of God. God warned him, and he still nursed his contempt, and he ended up killing his brother. What began in anger ended in murder. And don't think it can't happen to you. Anger against your brother, unchecked, brooded over, nursed, stoked, that anger does not stay inside. Anger uh, and anger-filled thoughts turn to words. The anger works its way out into slander, into accusation, into name-calling. Thoughts turn to words. Words turn to deeds in hateful actions that may result in physical violence. If you keep feeding that fire, there's going to be a fight and something very bad could happen, even by accident. You can kill someone with a push, a shove, a, 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 a fist. Uh, you can kill someone and now you're a murderer. Now you're a murderer because you were consumed by anger. Jesus says, if you don't learn how to discipline your emotions and keep your anger under control, you are going to break the sixth commandment. You are going to commit murder. You're going to end up in front of a judge and you're going to end up under God's judgment. That's not hyperbole. That's not an overstatement. That's not a stretch. I know two men who are sitting in prison today. I've known them at two different parts of my life. Two men who are sitting in prison today who committed murder. They ought to have been executed. In a just society, they just would have been executed. But they're, they're sitting in prison because the anger in their heart boiled over into murder. These are men that I worshiped with at various points in my life. These are people that I sat in church with. And you think, he, he did that? Yes, he did. He did that because he didn't listen to Jesus. He did not temper his anger and it boiled over into murder. Uh, and, and it happens. It happens. So what would Jesus have us do? 
Well, de-escalate, make peace, reconcile, leave the altar, go and be reconciled with your brother. In verse 25, Jesus says, agree with your adversary quickly while you're on the way with him, lest you end up in prison. You quickly work, you fervently work to restore the relationship with your brother and even advance it, make it better than what it was before. Conflict is an opportunity to make things better. Now we're not naive. Not everybody wants to reconcile. Not everybody wants to be at peace. Sometimes when you are for peace, they are for war. Sometimes your efforts to make peace will be turned against you. Whether or not they receive your overture of peace is up to them. That's why Paul says in Romans 12, if it is possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes it isn't possible. You can only do what depends on you. But if you are faithful before God to seek restoration, no matter what, you are going to keep the sixth commandment and then leave it in God's hands if perhaps he will change their heart and turn their heart toward you. Paul writes about this in 2 Timothy. Listen to what he says to the young Timothy. He says, avoid foolish and ignorant disputes, knowing that they generate strife. And a servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. Listen to this part. If God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they may know the truth and that they come to their senses and escape the stare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. You trust, you obey, you make the effort to reconcile, and then you leave the results to God. And this is even for, I mean, there are some real dangerous people that you come across. There are some real hateful, hateful people, and you do need to keep your distance. You may have made an effort uh, to reconcile, and they're not having it, and you can't be in the same room with this person anymore because they're hateful and violent. Um, you're praying for God to grant them repentance. You've done what you can do, and you wait for God uh, to work and to change their heart. That is how you keep the commandment. This is the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. This is true law keeping. This is true law fulfillment. This is obedience to God's perfect standard, not by heaping up new regulations, but by liberating the followers of Jesus, liberating them from their unbridled anger, teaching them how to manage it and warning them of what's going to happen if they don't. Jesus takes us all the way back to the heart because that's where it starts. The anger that is nurtured there, if it's unchecked, is going to work its way out into full-blown covenant breaking. And incidentally, the outline that Jesus gives here, this progression, uh, that's followed by the Pharisees and, uh, and we see it play out in real time in Jesus's ministry. The hatred and the jealousy of the Pharisees toward their brother Jesus doesn't stay inside. It breaks out in slander against Jesus. They start to accuse him. Look who he's eating with. Look how he's eating. Look, look at how he's a drunkard and he's a glutton and he's with unwashed people. They start to make these accusations against him. And eventually their anger boils over like Cain's anger and they end up killing their brother because they're jealous over his sacrifice before God. 
Jesus, on the other hand, he works out his righteous anger. Jesus is righteously angry against them, but he works this out in confronting them and calling them to repentance and defending those who are oppressed by them and pursuing peace and ultimately reconciling the world to himself through the cross. So what is the immediate application for us right here, right now? Well, it's very simple. You might ask, is there anyone for whom you are presently harboring deep contempt? Is there anyone for whom you are harboring deep hatred? Who is it that makes your blood boil and just rubs you the wrong way? You can't stand to be in the same room with them. Think, what, what is it that they've done to provoke that in you? Did they sin against you? Did they? They might have. What commandment did they break? Does God call it sin? The thing that you're angry about, does God call it sin? Or is it a difference of opinion? Is it a difference of culture? Is it a difference of style or preference? If so, you, you have to let it go. You, you got to let love cover that. You got to forget that. You can't let that destroy you. But if it is sin, let's assume it is sin. You are angry about sin. What have you done about it? Have you confronted the sin? Have you taken along a witness? Have you told it to the church? Have you followed the Matthew 18 instruction? If not, why not? Why haven't you done that? Are you working toward a biblical resolution or are you carrying around this burning hatred for them over something that they've done to you and you think by carrying this around, that makes you more righteous. That makes you more godly. It gives you a moral superiority over them. If that's the case, if that's so, you're just another Pharisee. Your righteousness does not exceed the, the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. You're just, you're just one of them. Has the contempt that you hold in your heart, has it boiled over into words? You slander them, you tear them down because you want other people to know. You want other people to hate them as much as you hate them so that no one ever has to go through what you went through so that they know how righteous you are and how awful your enemy is. Is that what you're doing? You've got this verbal warfare going on? Yeah, you're still a Pharisee. If that's you, you're still a Pharisee. If you're ever in the same room with them, how likely is the conflict to get physical? Is it possible that in a moment of anger, the temperature is so high you would take a swing you might shove them, uh, that you might actually want to put them on the ground to physically overpower them and make them suffer. Do you imagine that? Do you play out that scenario? How much of a stretch is it from imagination to reality for you? Do you plan it out? Do you, do you plot out scenarios to do them harm? If that's where you are, if that's anywhere close to home, you are in grave danger. Jesus says that. I'm not saying that. Jesus says that. You are in grave danger. You must be reconciled to your brother. You must be reconciled to God. Repent of your murderous thoughts. Refresh your commitment to reconcile as much as lies with you. And again, it doesn't all lie with you, but as much as lies with you, reconcile. What does that look like? What does it look like? What would God have you do as you seek to please him in all things? What does God require of you now? That's the righteousness that fulfills the law. That's the righteousness that exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. These are the people, the people who quickly seek reconciliation with their adversary. These are the people who make up the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we pray that you would help us by your spirit to properly discern 
the source of our anger and frustration. Guard us from hateful, angry, murderous thoughts. Guard us from brooding and bitterness. Make our hearts light and joyful and give us the ability to pursue reconciliation and fellowship with all those who have offended us or sinned against us. And we trust that you'll turn their hearts as well so that relationships would be restored and that you would be praised in the unity of the brotherhood, in the unity of the church. And Father, uh, we pray that you would guard us and, and guide us and defend us and defend our families, defend your church. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.